podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Before we get started, I just want to take a minute to say thank you to all of our loyal listeners and welcome if this is your first time. We've been getting great feedback, we have a very diverse following from all over the world and from different clubs. I'm really honored to know that some of the most knowledgeable Napoli Tifosi listen to this pod and I think you know who you are. And it's always great to hear from listeners who support other clubs, so please keep sending us your feedback because it only helps us to deliver the quality content you're looking for. So on today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Serie A and Napoli. In part 2, we'll recap round 32 of Serie A, round 34 of Serie B, and the Serie C promotion playoff. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's draw to Milan on Sunday. And in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Bologna on Wednesday. Starting in Serie A, the 20 presidents met on Monday to discuss broadcasting and whether to stop Sky from broadcasting matches. Thankfully, better judgment prevailed. Even though Sky has yet to pay the final installment, the presidents decided that in order to protect the fans, which I take to mean to prevent social gatherings and the spread of COVID-19, and out of respect for fans, sponsors, and other stakeholders, Sky will still be permitted to broadcast matches. That said, unless Sky submits a gigantic bid, I can't see how they will be awarded the next contract after this. That contract will be for the 2021-2024 to seasons. Another topic discussed at this meeting was whether stadiums will be partially reopened to spectators. A protocol to have fans return is being finalized and will be submitted to the FIGC to review, which Gravina will then bring to the government. If the Italian government extends the state of emergency, then that should immediately end any discussions about having fans in the stadium. But even if they don't extend the state of emergency, when you think back to how long it took for Minister Spadafora to approve the protocol just to resume play, I think it's highly unlikely we'll see fans in stadiums this season. Moving on to Napoli, we promised last time that we'll provide a transfer update, so let's start with some of Napoli's current players. Starting with Kaladu Koulibaly, he gave a long interview to the Gazzetta dello Sport where he talked about his situation. He said he's never spoken to the club about leaving. He said we'll see if De Laurentiis offers him an extension that allows him to retire in Napoli, but he still has three years on his contract so a lot can happen. He would stay if a deal can be reached, but he also doesn't want to deceive anyone. This is football, and sometimes players are sold. He said his family is happy in Napoli. He doesn't like the label of the 100 million euro man. Right now, the only 100 he thinks of is the 100% he gives on the pitch. Onto Piotr Zelinski, it seems only the signature remains on his renewal. He said they have been negotiating the renewal for some time, and he hopes an announcement will come in the next few days, but he'll let his agent deal with that. Rest assured, though, he does want to remain at Napoli. The one player who seems destined to leave is Arkadiusz Milik. According to the papers, his preferred destination is Juventus, but Atletico Madrid and Tottenham are both interested. There's even speculation that Milik has already committed to Juventus, which does complicate matters. Tottenham are reportedly offering Lucas Moura in exchange for Milik. 
According to the Spanish press, Atletico are now pursuing Arsenal's Alexander Lacazette and therefore are no longer pursuing Milik. There were previous reports that Roma would swap Under for Milik, who they value at 30 million euros, but both sides want cash for their respective players, so I don't see that one happening. Next, let's do a quick update on some potential signings. Napoli's primary target at the moment is Lille's Victor Osimhen. The latest reports are that Osimhen is waiting to see if there's any interest from England, which seems to have rubbed some Napoli fans the wrong way. I personally don't have an issue with that. Our beloved Dries Mertens waited until the last few weeks of his contract to confirm his renewal. According to Radio Kiss Kiss, Osimhen's brother-in-law said that Osimhen is not waiting for a call from any English clubs. There were previously reports that Osimhen had reservations about playing in Italy because of the racism issues that exist in the country. Koulibaly confirmed this. He said, It is true that he called me. We talked about racism. I told him he won't have any problems in Napoli. I too have felt the bitterness of a racist insult, but never in Napoli. I reassured him that if he comes, he will have made the best choice. Last week, reports surfaced that Osimhen was given a 7-10 to 10 day deadline, while other reports suggested that the young striker requested more time, but in any event, that would suggest the decision will be made late this week or early next. Then a member of Osimhen's camp indicated that a decision will be made by Thursday. So it's not too surprising that this week the rumors have really heated up. On a side note, one thing I don't like about this whole situation is in fact Osimhen's camp because they seem to be the ones fueling most of the rumors. A whole host of stories broke this week. One was that Osimhen's agent was trying to negotiate a higher bonus for himself, which led Osimhen to fire his agent, which seems to be why we're getting closer to a deal now. We also heard that Cristiano Giuntoli was in France, presumably to negotiate this deal, and that the negotiation was happening on the yacht of Lille's president, Gerard Lopez. In terms of the price, there have been reports that Napoli will pay $80 million for Osimhen, $50 million in cash, and the other 30 by sending Adam Unas to Lille, I haven't seen anything to validate that. I think it's pure media speculation. Speculation also remains that Lille defender Gabriel could be included in the deal for a total of around 100 million euros. And on Tuesday, Gianluca Di Marzio reported that an agreement has been reached for around 60 million euros. According to French paper L'Equipe, Osimhen has agreed to a five-year contract. On to Jeremy Boga, Napoli is reportedly in pole position for him as well. However, according to Il Matino, Sassuolo are now asking for 50 million euros, and even then the Zerbi may not let him go. If not, Cenzegunder, Federico Bernardeschi, and Everton Suarez are possible alternatives. Milan and Napoli both remain interested in Werder Bremen's Milo Rashica as well. Bremen Sporting Director Frank Bauman confirmed that Rashica will be sold this summer, but stated, We certainly won't sell him for less than what he's worth. Moving on, Atalanta coach Giampiero Gasperini can add Napoli fans to the list of people that can't stand him. He was approached by a Napoli fan before Atalanta's match against Juventus who asked Gasperini if Atalanta will beat Juve or if they will hand another win to Juventus as they have for the last 10 years referring to the last time Atalanta defeated Juventus. Those comments may have been provoking but Gasperini and his staff's derogatory responses about Southerners were uncalled for. Gasparini later apologized for his comments, if you can call it an apology. He said, I apologize for the turn of phrase I used towards this fake fan. I apologize for not being able to remain calm in the face of serious and defamatory accusations from this gentleman. I'm not making excuses for my behavior. I'm aware that I was wrong. In other news, on Monday morning, Aurelio De Laurentiis, Angelo Caruso, who's the mayor of Castel di Sangro, and representatives from the region of Abruzzo announced that Napoli's quote-unquote summer training will be held in Castel di Sangro. 
After the conference, De Laurentiis was asked about the start date of the 2020-2021 Serie A campaign. He responded that the league wants it to start on September 12th, but he thinks it should not start until October 4th or September 26th at the earliest. Staying with De Laurentiis, he did keep his promise that if Napoli won the Coppa Italia, that all players and staff with a sports contract will be paid for the months of April and May, and the month of June will be paid for as well. So that's it for part one. In part two, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football. So next we'll cover the latest action in Italian football starting with Serie A. We'll start with the marquee matchup of the weekend which was Atalanta-Juventus. Atalanta went into this match 9 points back of the champions so with a win they'd be very much in contention for the Scudetto. Atalanta came into this match well rested after playing nearly an entire squad of substitutes against Cagliari midweek. Meanwhile Juve were coming off a tough 4-2 loss to Milan after leading 2-0 and it showed early on. Atalanta came out flying. Juve barely touched the ball in the opening minutes, and when they did, Atalanta pressed really high and forced Juventus to make mistakes or play long balls, which resulted in turnovers. Atalanta looked very good early on. They had a spell of possession around the 5th minute right after Rabiot fouled Zapata, where Atalanta completed 22 consecutive passes without Juve touching the ball. And I'm not talking about the center backs passing the ball to each other. They were moving forward, backwards, Switching the ball across the field, there was a volley pass, a couple of hard hit passes, it was really something else. Atalanta opened the scoring in the 16th minute on some excellent link-up play between Papu Gomez and Duvan Zapata. This play actually started with a really nice tackle by Remo Freuler on Paolo Dybala to win possession. The through ball from Papu was just delightful, and once again we saw the strength and finishing abilities of Duvan. Juve really struggled to create anything in the first half, Atalanta were in complete control and you felt it was only a matter of time before they scored a second. Juve's only real chance was a play where Bentancur picked out Dybala's run. Dybala took the ball down remarkably well, that play had a high degree of difficulty, before hitting the volley on his second touch but the shot soared wide of the goal. Once again I think Dybala was Juventus's best player. Ronaldo equalized early in the second half after Dybala's cross struck Martin Darun on the hand. Ronaldo converted the penalty, scoring his 27th goal of the season. In the 67th minute, Gasparini replaced two of his most dangerous players. Luis Muriel came on for Duvan Zapata and Ruslan Malinovsky replaced Papu Gomez. Credit to Gasparini for trusting in his squad and for going after the win. By the 75th minute, Atalanta had already used all of their subs. Muriel and Malinovsky played really well. They linked up in the 81st minute when Malinovsky blasted a powerful low strike past Szczesny to put Atalanta back ahead. After the goal, Juventus finally started to play more positively, which led to the second penalty kick. This one was really unfortunate as Bernardeschi's touch was heading away from Atalanta's goal when it hit Muriel's hand, 
but the ball definitely touched his hand and his arm was outstretched, so I actually think this was the correct application of the rule. He wasn't handling the ball intentionally, but he did make his body unnaturally bigger. Ronaldo converted again from the penalty spot to score his 28th of the season, only one back of Chiro Immobile. That was the final goal of the match, which ended 2-2. After this match, all the talk was about the penalty kicks and the handball rule, or perhaps the Italian interpretation of the rule, which is unfortunate because there should have been more talk about how positive Atalanta's play was. Even Juventini, or at least the ones that I know and respect, acknowledged that Juve probably didn't deserve to walk away from this match with a point. However, they correctly pointed out that Juve have also been on the receiving end of some of these calls as well. I think a lot of the frustration from anyone who's not a Juventino comes from the fact that with Lazio and Inter both losing matches lately, Atalanta seemed like the only club who could realistically dethrone the champions. Atalanta have won 9 in a row while Juventus, while still winning, have looked vulnerable at times. An Atalanta win would have reduced Juve's lead to 6 points with 6 matches remaining, which would have still been very difficult to overcome. Essentially, Juventus would have to lose its next two matches against Sassuolo and Lazio because after that, their schedule is a bit of a cakewalk, playing against Udinese, Sampdoria, Cagliari, and Roma. Realistically, the only match I could see Juve losing is against Sassuolo, who are in great form right now, but I don't think any of the others, including Lazio, will beat them. So instead, Atalanta remain 9 points back, Juventus will win their ninth consecutive championship. Earlier in the day, Lazio played against Sassuolo, which was a really intriguing matchup. This was a match between two clubs heading in the opposite direction. Lazio have really struggled since the restart, while Sassuolo have played really attractive and more importantly winning football. Those trends continued in this match. Sassuolo defeated Lazio 2-1. We got more of the same from Lazio. They started out strong, looking dangerous, and then as the match wore on, they faded away. The first half was a really entertaining half with these clubs trading opportunities. Chiro Immobile had a great chance in the opening minutes of the match, but his shot missed the goal. In the 8th minute, Giacomo Raspadori thought he scored his first Serie A goal. VAR reviewed the goal and ruled that he was offside, even though Marco Parolo appeared to get the last touch. Filip Juricic nearly opened the scoring after he made an excellent run across the middle of the pitch, but his shot deflected off Stefan Radu and hit the bar. Luis Alberto opened the scoring for Lazio in the 33rd minute. Alberto got credit for the goal, but he didn't really take the shot as much as Locatelli cleared the ball off of Alberto and it ended up in the back of the goal. Full credit to Manuel Lazzari though, who blew past Locatelli on the wing before picking out Alberto in the box. Lazzari has been one of Lazio's few bright spots since the restart. Jeremy Boga continued to impress. He nearly equalized in the 38th minute with a shot that just missed the far post. Again, when this guy runs with the ball, it looks like it's stuck to his foot. He did leave the match in the 79th minute after appearing to pick up a muscle injury, but it was probably a cramp and I think he'll be fine for the next round of fixtures. Raspadori would get his goal in the second half, Caputo did really well to stay on side, and then even better to spot Raspadori in front of goal. The 20-year-old kept his composure and finished past Trakosha with his left foot. Sassuolo is by far the better side in the second half. Other than a Bastos header over the bar, Lazio really didn't get forward all that much. Sassuolo were awarded for their positive play in the second minute of added time when Chicho Caputo put Sassuolo ahead with a header from very close to the goal. So even though Juve tied, they still pulled away from Lazio who are now 8 points back of the leaders. Likewise, Atalanta are now only 1 point back of Lazio. Meanwhile, Sassuolo have reduced the gap between themselves and Milan to 4 points for that coveted 7th place finish. 
So with Lazio dropping more points, Inter had the opportunity to overtake Lazio for second in the table with a win over Torino on Monday. Once again, Antonio Conte started Borja Valero over Christian Eriksen. Romelu Lukaku started on the bench as well with Alexis Sanchez starting alongside the struggling Lautaro Martinez. Despite dominating play for the first 15 minutes of the half, it was Torino that opened the scoring off a corner kick. The normally very reliable Samir Handanovic dropped what should have been an easy catch. The ball fell for Andrea Bellotti, who only needed to touch the ball across the goal line to score his sixth goal in six matches. After the goal, neither side created much. Lautaro had a hard shot that was well stopped by Sirigu, and in the 37th minute, Torino rightly made claims for a handball on Bastoni, but the penalty wasn't given. That was a pretty crucial point of the match for me as Torino could have gone into the break up 2-0, but instead they were only up by 1. Inter came out of the break looking like a different side. Three minutes into the half, Ashley Young scored his third of the season. Brozovic played across to the far post. Lautaro did really well to head the ball back into the danger area, and Young smashed his volley past Sirigu. Only two minutes later, Diego Godin scored his first goal for the Nerazzurri to put Inter ahead on a beautifully worked set piece from the corner kick. Alexis Sanchez probably deserved more credit for this goal than Godin did. Sanchez played the corner short for Brozovic who gave it back to Sanchez after he overlapped. Sanchez then passed to Young at the top of the box before peeling towards the goal. Young picked out Sanchez's run and he headed it towards one of the four unmarked Inter players in front of the goal. Inter were a little bit shaky at the back, allowing half chances to both Verdi and Belotti. Sanchez was once again involved in Inter's third goal. He won possession from Itzo before sending Lautaro towards goal. Lautaro's shot took a deflection off Bremer to bounce over Sirigu, but the shot was goal-bound, so Lautaro was awarded his first goal in six matches. A few minutes later, Andrea Belotti nearly pulled one back, but his header hit the bar and stayed out. So with the win, Inter and Lazio are both on 68 points, 8 back of Juve, while Atalanta is on 67 points. 5th place Roma took on Brescia. Roma won this match comfortably 3-0. The first half was rather uneventful. Early in the match, Brescia looked like they might put up a fight, but it was all Roma after that. Jordan Vertu had a hard shot, but it was straight at Andrenacci. Kalinic had a couple of headers go over the bar, and Carlos Perez nearly scored, but his shot went wide of the goal. Roma opened the scoring early in the second half when Federico Fazio's shot was nearly stopped by Andrenacci, but the goal line technology showed quite clearly that the ball had trickled across the line. Brescia nearly leveled in the 54th minute off a corner kick, but Mangraviti's header just missed the goal. In the 58th minute, Brescia made two claims for a penalty, first for a handball on Ibanez, which did appear to be a handball, though I'm not certain it was inside the box, and then for a handball on Fazio, but neither were given. A few minutes later, Nikola Kalinic doubled Roma's lead with an excellent cross from Carlos Perez. Andrenacci committed himself and was left in no man's land after Kalinic's first touch. Nicolo Zagnolo came in off the bench again and scored his first since his return from injury with a powerful left-footed strike. Andrenacci probably should have done better on this one as well, but it is good to see Zagnolo scoring. In the 78th minute, Torregrosa smashed a shot from point-blank rage, but somehow Mirante kept it out. This one finished 3-0 which, according to the broadcast, was the 22nd consecutive win for Roma against a newly promoted club. Milan drew Napoli 2-2, which we'll cover in detail in Part 3. Fiorentina played Verona in what promised to be an intriguing battle. At the start of the season, we knew that one of these clubs would be competing for the Europa League and the other would be competing for survival, but we didn't expect that it would be Verona competing for the Europa League and Fiorentina fighting for survival. This match was a tale of two halves, 
Verona controlled play in the first half and scored the opening goal of the match in the 18th minute. Davide Faraone scored an acrobatic bicycle kick from an excellent ball over the top from Amrabat. Other than the goal, it was not the most entertaining of halves I've ever watched. Fiorentina looked like the better side in the second half. In the 56th minute, Fiorentina should have been awarded a penalty kick based on how the rule has been applied in Serie A. Igor's header clearly hit Pessina on the hand, which was away from his body, and yet no penalty was given. And that's been the most frustrating thing about this handball rule, which is how inconsistently it's being applied. Fiorentina nearly equalized in the 68th minute. Lirola played a cross that got over Silvestri for Cutrone, who had a wide open goal but his header went straight up in the air. Silvestri may have gotten a fingertip on the cross which would have been enough to throw Cutrone off. Both sides had half chances but nothing really gave either keeper any trouble. The final few minutes of the half were pretty chaotic. Both sides looked very tired. It was very scrappy. In the final minute, Silvestri made an excellent save on Kuwame. Then miraculously, in the 96th minute, Federico Chiesa played a perfect, delicate through ball to Patrick Cutrone, who got inside Amir Akmani and touched his shot around Silvestri to level the score at 1, which is how this one ended. Parma drew Bologna 2-2, which we'll cover in Part 4. At the bottom of the table, Sampdoria got a crucial 3-1 win over Udinese. That's the Blue Charcati's third win in four matches, so they are now six points clear of the relegation zone. Fabio Quagliarella scored Sam's first goal in his first game back. Bonazzoli scored the winner and Gabbiadini scored the third. Sam still have matches to play against Parma, Juventus, and Milan, so I wouldn't say they're completely in the clear just yet, but they are looking good, so job well done by Claudio Ranieri. For Udinese, this was their first loss in four matches. Kevin Lasagna scored once again. Six of his ten goals on the season have come in the last five matches. Udinese are also six points clear of the relegation zone, but four of their remaining matches are against Lazio, Napoli, Juventus, and Sassuolo, so I don't think they're safe just yet either. Genoa got an important 2-0 win over Spal on goals from 37-year-old Goran Pandev and 34-year-old Lasse Shona, and Lecce drew Cagliari 0-0. So Spal and Brescia are not mathematically eliminated with 18 points still up for grabs, but it seems pretty clear that they're going to be heading back to Serie B. Genoa and Lecce will battle to avoid the final relegation spot. As it stands, Genoa are 1 point safe on 30 points, and Torino are still in the mix on 34 points. In Serie B, round 34 was played on Monday. 18th place Trapani defeated the champions Benevento 2-0. Since winning Serie B, Benevento have yet to record a win. The marquee match of the day was 2nd place Cotrone versus 3rd place Pordenone. Crotone won 1-0, so they are now 6 points clear of 3rd place and are looking like they'll take that 2nd promotion spot with only 4 matches to play. Spezia defeated last place Livorno to hop over Pordenone in the 3rd spot. Cittadella lost 4-1 to Salernitana but remained in 5th after Frosinone drew Juve Stabia 2-2. With that win, Salernitana moved up to 7th with Empoli being upset 1-0 by Ascoli. Empoli were fortunate though that Kevo lost and Pisa drew Antella 1-1, so both Kevo and Pisa are now one point back of Empoli for that final playoff spot. At the bottom of the table, Cosenza defeated Perugia 2-1 to keep their hopes of surviving alive. Rounding out the match day, Pescara drew Venezia 1-1. So as it stands, Livorno are relegated, Trapani and Cosenza are in the other relegation spots on 35 and 34 points respectively and Perugia and Juve Stabia are in the relegation playout spots on 41 and 38 points respectively, but there's still plenty to play for, and Tella, Cremonese, Ascoli, and Pescara 
are all within three points of that final relegation playout spot. Finally, in Serie C, the quarterfinals of the promotion playoff were played on Monday. Bari drew Ternana 1-1, so Bari advances the higher-placed team. Novara beat Carpi 2-1. Juve's U23 squad drew Carareze, so that ends Juve's run as Carareze were higher-placed. And Reggio Adace drew Potenza 0-0, so Reggio Adace advance as the higher-placed team. So that means the semifinals are all set. Reggio Adace will play Novara, and Bari will play Carareze. That'll do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's draw against Milan. Okay, so let's review Napoli's match against Milan. So Federico Lopena gets us underway. Rubic with the turn to pick the pass for Hernandez! Who thrashes Milan in front? The two options here, as they pretty much always are. From Insigne, looking for a touch! Which arrives from Di Lorenzo. If anyone deserved to be in front, it would be the home side, Napoli, who've been excellent. But Milan showing all that dogged fighting spirit. At halftime at the San Paolo, it's Napoli 1, Milan 1. Space now again for Callejon. Pulls it back for Martins. Who finds a way? Dries Mertens for Napoli again. And they've come from behind to lead at San Paolo. Here goes Bonaventura. Might fall for Ravic. Good block, Koulibaly. Bonaventura goes over penalty. Once again, Jack Bonaventura makes the difference against Napoli. Super cool. Frank Kessie draws Milan level. Oh, Salamakas with the challenge from behind. Referee is going to show him the yellow card. And the young Belgian, Alexis Salamakas, is sent off, and Milan will have to finish with 10 here. Benasser took it short. Conti wasn't aware of it. So a bit of fast to end what was a terrific game. What a wasted opportunity at the end. There is the final whistle. Napoli 2, Milan 2. So as you heard, this one finished 2-2. So let's start with the lineups. Milan lined up in their usual 4-2-3-1 with Gianluigi Donnarumma in goal. Donnarumma was not at his best in this one. On the first goal, he gave up a big rebound for Di Lorenzo to tap into the empty goal. But I wouldn't be too critical of him on this one. That's a really tough situation for the keeper. Even if you can see the trajectory of the ball, he is also anticipating a header, so this plays like a last-second reaction save. The second goal is the one I think Donnarumma should have done better on. 
The shot did take a deflection off of Romagnoli, but that did not change the direction of the ball too much. For what it's worth, Donnarumma made a couple of excellent saves on plays that wouldn't have counted. He pushed an Insigne shot off the upright, but that would have been called off as the ball deflected off Mertens, who was in an offside position. Later in the first half, he made an excellent save on Zielinski, but Callejon was called for a foul on that play. At the back, Milan started their usual quartet of Teo Hernandez, Alessio Romagnoli, Simon Cagher, and Andrea Conti. Teo Hernandez once again showed why he's widely regarded as the best fullback in Serie A. We'll talk about the goal in a bit. The holding midfielders were Frank Kessia and Ismail Benacer. Kessia had another good match defensively and with Ibra on the bench, he took the penalty kick. Even though he had to wait a while for VAR to review the call, Kessia was very cool when he picked the corner. We did see Pioli do some rotating with his attacking midfielders. Antti Rebic remained on the left wing where he played against Juventus. Salamaker started on the bench. Lucas Paqueta moved from the middle to the right wing. And Hakan Chalanoglu started in the middle. Paqueta was really quiet in this one. I barely heard his name called. At the half, he was replaced by Salamakers. Late in the match, Salamakers showed his inexperience picking up two yellow cards in the span of three minutes. With Milan down a man, Pioli replaced Rebic with Rade Krunic to protect the draw. Hakan was relatively quiet as well, though he did play an important switch on the build-up to the Teo Hernandez goal. In the 60th minute, he was replaced by Giacomo Bonaventura, who's always good against Napoli, and he did it again on this match. In the 71st minute, Bonaventura drew a foul from Maximovic in the box to earn Milan a penalty. I thought Bonaventura went down too easily, but Maximovic was late, and he did make contact, so I can appreciate that the penalty was given. Zlatan Ibrahimovic started as striker. Ibra got into some pretty deep positions, which I thought was unusual, but other than that, he was really quiet in this one as well. And in the 61st minute, Ibra was replaced by Rafael Leao. For Napoli, David Ospina started in goal. Like Meret against Roma and Genoa, he wasn't very busy in this one. I thought he could have done better on the Teo Hernandez goal, and of course you can't blame him for the goal on the penalty kick. At the back, there was one change we didn't expect, which was Nikola Maximovic starting over Kostas Manolas. The broadcast suggested that Manolas is not quite match fit yet after returning from injury. I personally don't think that's it. I think Maximovic earned his playing time for how well he played when Manolas was out. I suspect we'll see Maximovic and Manolas alternate starts. I actually wouldn't even be surprised if we saw Gattuso rotate between all three center backs so that each one rests every third match. Kaladu Koulibaly was excellent once again. He was a little more adventurous in this match. He made a couple of runs up the middle of the field, which admittedly was a bit nerve-wracking, but one of those runs led to the first Napoli goal. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Rui has been very good of late. He offers more of an attacking threat than Kusai or Golam would, and he's left-footed. He likes getting forward and has been most effective when Insigne slides into the middle of the pitch and Rui overlaps. Di Lorenzo seemed to really benefit from having a match off. He ran up and down the wing as much as his counterpart Teo Hernandez did. Di Lorenzo was shown a yellow early in the match for a slide tackle on Teo Hernandez, which looked like a 50-50 ball. Teo rolled around in pain, so he was given the call. If you want to call that foul, fine, but definitely no yellow there. At the same time, I wasn't shocked at the card. La Pena has shown more cards than any other official in the league, so he lived up to his reputation in this match. In the midfield, I was really surprised to see Lobotka get the start considering that Demen missed last match due to suspension. This decision was made more for tactical reasons than because of fitness. 
It does not make much of a difference, though. They're both excellent passers, especially since they're not required to play too many long balls in Gattuso's system. Fabian and Zielinski completed the midfield. Fabian had a fairly quiet game, which is understandable. This was his fifth consecutive start in the midfield, so he could be a little bit fatigued. As usual, Zielinski covered more ground than any other player on the pitch. It's hard to be critical of Zielinski because he's so important to this squad, but if I had to pick one thing that he needs to work on, it's his finishing. He's come close a few times of late, but is struggling to hit the target. Up top, Gattuso went back to the trio of Insigne, Mertens, and Callejon. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing. Like Fabian, this wasn't the standout performance we've come to expect from Insigne, but he wasn't bad either. Insigne has started all 8 of Napoli's matches since football resumed, so he could be fatigued as well. And in fact, I think that is why Gattuso elected to leave Callejon out there longer and replaced Insigne with Lozano instead of Callejon with Lozano. Nonetheless, he always seems to make at least one important contribution, and in this match, it was the cross on the Di Lorenzo goal. Dries Mertens started his second consecutive match, which was also surprising. To this point, Mertens and Milik have alternated just about every start, so to me this means that players are now at least close to the levels of fitness they were at before football stopped. Even though they're playing every three or four days, that's not so unusual for big clubs and normal campaigns when they're competing in domestic and European cups. Gattuso definitely made the correct decision to start Mertens over Milik. Once again, he put in a really good performance. In fact, I think this might have been his best since Serie A resumed. He was very involved in the attack. He had an opportunity in the first half where he popped the ball to his right to get past Conti, then quickly cut in to split Conti and Paqueta before firing toward the far post and forcing an excellent save from Donnarumma. Of course, Mertens scored the second goal for Napoli. He was a little fortunate that this one found the back of the goal, but they all count. Gattuso has talked about how everyone needs to help out. We saw Mertens track back a number of times in this match. In the second half, he made an excellent slide tackle on Rebic all the way back in his own box. And if he keeps doing that, you can be sure that Mertens will be the preferred starter for the balance of the season. Milik didn't help his cause either. His performance was rather underwhelming. He had a shot blocked and then he had that really poorly taken free kick, which just about summed up his night. Finally, Jose Callejon started at right wing. For me, Callejon is as much of a weapon as he is a liability. In the first half, he seemed to be involved in every Napoli attack. His ability to finish is not quite what it used to be. He had an opportunity in the 19th minute from close range, but he didn't connect fully and Donnarumma stopped the shot with relative ease. Though he hasn't scored as much, Callejon has contributed with his runs on the wing and ensuing crosses. In this match, he played the cutback to Mertens on the second goal. However, like I said, he can also be a liability. On the Teo Hernandez goal, Callejon was late to pick up the run. He also got away with a foul on Teo Hernandez later in the half that probably should have been a booking. So let's talk about Milan's goals. The first one came immediately after Callejon failed to convert from point-blank range. This goal was very similar to the goals Milan scored against Lazio two games prior, where in the first half they didn't have much possession, but when they did, they worked the ball around really well and finished their opportunities. And that's also something that Rui Pereira talked about in our bonus preview of this match. Rui explained that one of the reasons for Milan's recent success is they've been able to capitalize on their opportunities. Milan completed at least 12 passes in the build-up to the goal and three of them were really key. The first was the switch from Chalanoglu to pick out Salamaker's run on the right wing. The second was the through ball by Benacer to find Rebic in the box. And then the third was Rebic's cross to find an unmarked Teo Hernandez at the back post. Though Paqueta was quiet in this match, he did have an important role on this goal, whether he realized it or not. When he played the pass back to Benacer prior to Benacer playing the through ball, 
Paketa pulled Kulibali with him, which in turn created space for Benacer to feed Rebic. It's hard to find flaws in Kulibali's game right now, but this was a rare misstep for him. Zielinski and Laboka were both there to close down Paketa, so Kulibali did not need to commit. Then, of course, there was the Tero Hernandez volley. This was excellent technique. Calihon was late to pick up the run, which gave Teo the time and space to get the shot off. Not to take too much away from Teo Hernandez, but I thought Ospina could have done better there. He was a little too deep in his goal. In fact, his momentum was pulling him into the goal. So though he got a hand on the ball, that only pushed it into the roof of the goal. Had he been further off his line, that ball probably goes over the bar. After this, I couldn't help but think of the ospina Meret debate again. You almost wish you could have a keeper that combined both of their best qualities. We know that Gattuso prefers Ospina for his footwork, and after some nervous moments against Genoa, you can see why. But I do think that Meret is the better shot stopper, and I wonder if he would have done better on this one. On the second goal, Bonaventura drew the foul in the box. I thought Bonaventura went down a bit easy, but he did do well to get a touch before Maksimovic came in for the tackle. Maksimovic definitely made contact, so I think this was the right decision. Credit to Frank Kessia, he had to wait a good while to take the penalty while VAR reviewed the play. That's a lot of time to get into your own head, but he kept his cool and calmly picked the corner. That's his second goal in as many matches. A while back, our friend Eddie asked us about a possible Kessia move to Napoli, and I didn't see how he would fit into this Napoli squad, but the way he's been playing lately, I have to admit I'm starting to second-guess myself a little bit, though I do maintain that he would be too expensive. If you want to hear what we had to say about Kessie previously, then check out episode 12. I'll close with a few general comments on the match. Even though Napoli dominated the first half, the second half was far more even. Napoli was fortunate that Donnarumma had a bit of an off day. According to the broadcast, this was the first time this season that Napoli have picked up a point after trailing in a match. Udinese is the only club left to not do that. With Atalanta playing the way they are, Napoli's chances of qualifying for Champions League are next to impossible. Atalanta will probably finish ahead of Lazio, who's 16 points clear of Napoli at the moment. So all in all, I think both Napoli and Milan were content with this draw. So that's our review of Napoli-Milan. In part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Bologna. Okay, so we'll close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Wednesday against Bologna. So let's start with Bologna's most recent match against Parma, also known as the Derby della Miglia. Parma rested Dejan Klusevski, Andreas Cornelius, and Gervinho for this match, and they changed from their usual 4-3-3 formation to a 4-4-1-1, which did not go too well. Bologna were able to play the ball out with ease and had plenty of space to run in the midfield, Bologna captain Danilo opened the scoring in the third minute from a quarter kick. Ricardo Orsolini's delivery was perfect. It had so much pace that it only needed a flick to get past Luigi Seppe, who had no chance of stopping the header. Only 10 minutes later, Roberto Soriano, who missed Bologna's previous match due to a suspension, doubled Bologna's lead, curling his left-footed strike around Seppe into the back of the goal. 
Parma did not record a single shot on target in the first half. In the second half, Parma went back to their usual 4-3-3, and the changes seemed to have immediate effect. All of a sudden, Parma were playing more positively. Skorupski wasn't really tested until the 82nd minute when he made an emphatic save on Alberto Grassi's firm strike from a sharp angle. In the 88th minute, Roberto Ingleza nearly pulled one back after Skorupski fumbled his catch. Ingleza, who had missed 11 games with a hamstring injury, fired toward the far post, but Ibrahimi Mbai did really well to clear the ball off the line. But as Parma do, they just kept playing. In the 93rd minute, Yasmin Kurtic scored from a corner to make the score 2-1. And then in the final seconds of the match, Roberto Ingleza equalized, so this one finished 2-2. So looking ahead to Napoli's match against Bologna, let's start with Bologna's lineup. Sinisa Mihailovic's men will line up in their usual 4-2-3-1 formation with Luka Skorupski in goal. With Mattia Bani leaving the Parma match with a calf injury, Bologna's back four is likely to be Mitchell Dykes, Stefano Denswil, Danilo, and Takahiro Tomiyasu. Jordi Schutten is also injured, so I expect to see Gary Medel and Nicolas Dominguez play in the holding midfield roles. And Mihailovic's preferred attacking midfield is Nicolas Sansone, Roberto Soriano, and Ricardo Orsolini, with Musa Barrow playing in front of them as the striker. For Napoli, we should see David Ospina get another start in goal. At the back, I'm tempted to say that Mario Rui will get a rest, as he's now started five consecutive matches, and he's played the full 90 in the last four, but with Orsolini likely to start at right wing, I can't see how Rui doesn't start. Di Lorenzo should start at right back, and in the middle, I expect Costas Manolas to return to the starting lineup alongside Kalidou Koulibaly. In the midfield, Diego Demis should return to the starting 11 after Stanislav Loboka started two consecutive matches. I think Fabian will sit this one out as he started in five consecutive matches. Elif Elmes has been the first off the bench to replace either Fabian or Zielinski. And Zielinski should be fresh after resting for the Genoa match, so I expect him to complete the midfield. Up top, until I see Insigne get a rest, I have to expect that he will get yet another start. Mertens has started two consecutive matches now, but he's looking really fit. Also, it seems like Mertens knows that he will be replaced around the 65th minute, so he doesn't need to conserve his energy. Instead, he goes hard the whole time. That said, I do think Malik will get the start here. Mertens is 32, so you don't want to push him too hard and cause an injury. Finally, I expect Gattuso to continue to rotate on the right wing, which means Politano will start this match. In terms of the betting odds, Napoli are favored, Bologna are 3.5 to 1 underdogs, and the draw is 2.8 to 1. As far as my prediction goes, this one is harder to predict than I thought it would be, because Bologna are an unpredictable team. Since the restart, they're 2-2-2. Their two losses have come against Juventus and Sassuolo, which is understandable. Their two draws have come against mid-table teams in Parma and Cagliari, and their two wins have been against Sampdoria, which is what you would expect, and Inter, which was a shock, particularly because Bologna were down a goal and a man in that match. Bologna have plenty of pace and creativity up top, with that front four of Musa Barrow, Nicola Sansone, Roberto Soriano, and Ricardo Orsolini, and if those four are not producing, they have plenty of quality off the bench in Rodrigo Palacio and Musa Juara. Napoli's midfielders will be key on the defensive side of the ball. We know that all these Bologna attackers can score from distance. We saw Soriano do that against Parma and we saw Juara do that against Inter. Napoli's backline will really be tested in this one. As good as Koulibaly has been and as good as the players he's shut down are, Musa Barrow might be the most difficult cover because of his pace. 
Orsolini will be a handful for Rui as well. So Napoli's midfielders will need to help their backline, which we know they're capable of doing. Other than Cagliari and Atalanta, Napoli and Milan have conceded the fewest goals since Serie A restarted. And the best way to stop Bologna's attack is to keep the ball away from them. We know from Napoli's recent matches that this club is capable of dominating possession, and I fully expect them to do that again here. Finally, Napoli will need to be more clinical in their finishing. They were fortunate against Milan that Donnarumma had an off day, or that result could have been worse. Skorupski is an excellent keeper, we saw him make save after save against Inter. So while I think this could actually be Napoli's first loss since the restart, I've talked myself into predicting another Napoli win. I'm going to go with a 2-1 result with goals from Insigne, Zielinski, and Musa Barrow. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Bologna. That will also do it for episode 26. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star review, and leave us a comment on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. We'll talk to you again after the Bologna match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Network.